Hi, this is Andrea Harkins. Welcome to the Martial Arts Women Podcast. This podcast is devoted to martial art women who make a difference. A child to Holocaust survivors, Zosha Gorbati, candidly shares the story of how her parents survived the most bleak and hopeless times of their lives. They were literally walking to their deaths at a death camp and somehow miraculously found each other, thanks to her father's whistling of a few notes of a familiar song. They were able to escape. The story is amazing. Zosha's father was a concert pianist, and her mother was a linguist who spoke many languages. Not surprisingly, Zosha was trained in piano as a young girl and also learned to play the oboe in school. After she graduated from college, she traveled Europe by herself, where she realized how many freedoms and privileges women in the United States had compared to these other countries. On her journeys, she experienced a devastating incident in Greece, which she explains further in this podcast. Zosha shares her commitment to martial arts, her instructors and styles, and how she met and fell in love with her husband of more than 40 years. Today, she's a ninth degree black belt. Along with her expertise in martial arts, she holds a master's degree in physical education from NYU, as well as numerous fitness certifications and yoga practice. She worked as a rape crisis advocate at Mount Sinai Hospital, and she conducts many self-defense and creative martial arts seminars. At 73 years old, Zosha is a vibrant martial artist who practices martial arts daily with her husband, including her favorite weapons, a wooden short staff, a walking cane, and a stone bead necklace that she created herself. She enjoys gardening and Chinese brush painting, and she and her husband cherish their dog, aptly named Sifu Silverfoot, who brings them so much joy. Don't miss this fascinating podcast from a truly passionate and personable martial art woman, Zosha Gorbati. Don't forget to check out my inspirational and how-to books, The Martial Arts Woman, Martial Art Inspirations for Everyone, and How to Start Your Own Martial Art Program, all available on Amazon. I hope these books inspire and encourage you to be the person that you want to be. Hi, Zosha. Welcome to the Martial Arts Woman podcast. Hi, Andrea. Thank you so much for having me. This is so exciting because you have an amazing story. You have amazing stories. Um, So I think people are going to really enjoy hearing about your life and all of the different aspects uh, from being a, a child to Holocaust survivors to your love for music, your fitness and yoga, your trainings, your travels. Um, even being a rape crisis advocate and, of course, a lifelong martial artist. So um, thank you for being here again. Wow, you really capsulized it pretty well. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> I like to give a little bit of a synopsis up front if possible, but, you know, it uh, gives everybody a chance who's listening to know what kind of what we're going to talk about today. But so let's get started. Just um you have such an interesting story. So I guess let's start at the beginning. Tell me about your background, where you were born and your early years and the fact that your parents were Holocaust survivors. 
Yeah, um, my parents were uh, brought up in Poland and uh, my father was a, a concert musician. He started playing uh, piano when he was four years old. And by the time he was 20, he was the uh, youngest instructor teacher at uh, the Warsaw School of Music, which was very famous at the time. Uh, my mother was an amazing woman. She was a linguist. She spoke about six different languages and had a master's degree in Latin and Greek. And um, they got married uh, right before uh, the war broke out. And uh, they were in Warsaw at the time. So when the war broke out, everything changed for them. And uh, they were actually able to survive because they uh, secured false papers. They secured uh, birth certificates that made them uh, seem as if they were uh, not Jewish. And because my mother was a linguist and spoke fluid German, she was actually able to get a job working for the Germans in an office uh, which allowed her to uh, get various uh, perks, such as bottles of vodka, which they traded for potatoes so they could eat. So they had a very hard time. Uh, my father's uh, <clears throat> uh, whole career was interrupted by the war, unfortunately, and uh, luckily they survived. Uh, they all were uh, on their way to a work camp and there were thousands of people walking. That's uh, how the Germans did it. They just had people walking, walking, walking to these death camps. And uh, my parents were actually separated, uh, women on one side, men on the other side. But because my father was a musician, he had, uh, they, they had this special whistle that was uh, about eight notes from a very well-known piece. And he kept whistling and whistling that eight notes until he found my mother. And they escaped one uh, night while everybody was walking. And um, that's one of the stories that they told me uh, about the war. So after the war ended, uh, they wanted to come to the United States, but it was very difficult uh, to get uh, entry into the United States at the time. So they uh, moved to Vienna and they were in Vienna for several years. And then I was born there uh, and that was 1949. And uh, about a year later, uh, they took a ship and arrived at the port in uh, Boston and took a train to New York City where they uh, then met up with the very few relatives that had left Poland before uh, the war. Uh -huh. And um, so we, uh, for the first couple of years, we lived uh, above a grocery store that my father's older brother had owned. And it was a small two-room apartment. Uh, they had a piano there because that's what my father did. And apparently my crib was right next to the piano. 
And my parents told me that uh, my father would play and I would be sleeping through it. Maybe I would raise my head and look at him <laughs> and then I would go back to sleep. So I was surrounded by music uh, from a really early age. That's amazing. Well, let me just stop there for a moment. And sure. Thank you for sharing that story. Um, and of course, we've all heard stories. I've heard stories before, but I've never really heard it from somebody intimately like involved in it. And so that was really interesting and so amazing that your parents were able to escape. That's like truly astounding. Um, and the musician piece is incredible as well. So you, you know, you mentioned that you were were in the crib and your father would play the piano and he was a concert pianist. Um, so did you have piano training as well? I really had no choice. Uh, from the time right. I was about five years old, <laughs> I was forced to uh, sit at the piano for anywhere when I was little, probably half hour a day. As I got older, it was an hour a day. And it was something, again, that I had no choice. Uh, my father actually started trying to teach me, but we had so many arguments okay. that, that he sent me to one of his uh, colleagues. And uh, so I ended up going to the Third Street Settlement Music School in New York City, uh, which is still around, an amazing uh, school. And there I not only studied uh, piano, but I studied uh, musical composition and theory. And uh, they had, uh, every month or so, they had uh, recitals, and I had to play in the recitals. And I just remember sitting backstage with butterflies in my stomach, not yeah. really wanting to do it, but doing it. So yeah, yeah. Uh, so was music was something more your father wanted you to do? It was not a personal passion of yours, or did it grow to be? Uh, as I got older, it grew to be. Uh, when I was about 13 or so, I applied to go to the uh, High School of Music and Art, uh, which now is uh, not called that anymore. But at the time, this was 1962. Uh, it was mm -hmm. a high school of music and art, and it was very well known. And I got in uh, on piano, but I had to take an orchestral instrument as well. So I wanted flute, but there were too many flute players. So they gave me the oboe. Okay. <laughs> and the oboe is quite a difficult instrument. And so I played the oboe in the orchestra. And I also, uh, while I was there, learned how to conduct the orchestra. And that was very exciting um, at the High School of Music and Art, conducting the orchestra there. Yeah. I think you mentioned that was one of your most exciting accomplishments in music. Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, and uh, so at the time, music really was not a love of mine. But mm -hmm. um, right now, it's funny because my parents always said, you'll appreciate it when you get older. Yeah. And of course, when you're younger, you don't realize that. But yes, I do appreciate it now that I'm older. <laughs> right. I know. Well, my daughter plays piano. She's oh. taken some classes, music theory, piano classes, private training, things like that. And we have a piano here at, at the house. Um, so I, I love to hear her play. Um, does, does she, she love it? 
She she loves playing. She hates learning about it, like you were yeah. talking. About. <laughs> of but course. she really enjoys playing, and I love hearing her play. So that's the oh, nice that's part right. of it. Oh, that's good. So you next, I mean, at some point in your life after this, um, after you received a bachelor's degree, I think you mentioned mm-hmm. um, yeah. college, you got the travel bug. And this was back, I guess, in probably the early 70s. Yeah, very early 70s. Uh, I think it was February 1971 when I uh, actually finally graduated from college. I had taken a little time off. And I was always a very independent soul. Um, I was supposed to go to Europe with a friend of mine, and she backed out. But I said, I'm going anyway. So I ended up going flying to London, where I did have a couple of friends. And then from there, I flew to Greece and began a journey that I will never forget that really made me appreciate living in the United States. Uh, I did not realize until then what uh, actual freedoms uh, and privileges women had here compared Mm -hmm. to uh, Europe at the time, and it also made me very aware about uh, the dangers of traveling as a woman. And okay. So, yeah. So did anything? Kind of, uh, did anything in particular happen to you personally? Oh yeah, yeah. I got into a little trouble there, and um, I was raped, and oh, okay. it was. Yeah, it was one of those things. And it was, as usual, somebody who I had known and met and uh, who turned on me. And at the time, I knew nothing about self-defense. I had no clue. And um, so I just endured it and Mm -hmm. uh, had to escape from the room when he fell asleep. And this was in Greece, but it was actually a French uh, man. Okay. So, uh, yeah. So I'm so sorry to hear that. I mean, so show. I've interviewed so many women for this podcast, and I can't tell you the percentage that have had that have been raped at some point in their life. Oh yeah. Um, it is, you know, a difficult topic to share, but it's so important to share it because I think the more we share, um, it provides awareness, but it also lets other women know they're not alone. I mean, it's just. Yeah, it's it's something that's never going to end, but we have to protect and learn to protect ourselves the best we can. But I'm very sorry to to hear that. Um, Thank you. Um, I've really uh, I I feel that it was an experience that taught me a lot. And uh, fortunately, I've been able to uh, release any Mm -hmm. of the demons that are associated with it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think it's time to delve into some martial art training. Uh, hey. How are you? <laughs> how were you introduced to martial arts, and and what year did you begin training? Okay, so when uh, I came back from uh, Europe, I. Uh, I lived in actually uh, up in Woodstock, New York for a few years, and I worked in theater, and I was kind of uh, a little bit lost. I didn't know really what I wanted to do, and then 
I fell into another job uh, working as a chemistry lab technician at Mount Sinai Hospital uh, in Manhattan. And uh, after work, I would go to the New York Health and Racquet Club, which was nearby. And mm -hmm. I was uh, primarily taking calisthenics classes. We didn't even have the word aerobics at that time. And I was taking yoga classes because I had already been involved in yoga for about 10 years at that time. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the classes that was offered there was karate. Uh, it was uh, Nisei Goju Karate. It was taught by a man named Wilfredo Rodin. And it just seemed really interesting. And it kind of spurred me on to think, well, you know, maybe I could learn some self-defense so I would never have to go through what I went through uh, while I was in mm -hmm. Europe. And so I started uh, taking those classes and I stayed there for about two or three years. And I felt that it was uh, enjoyable, but I was looking for something a little bit more traditional. It was very street kind of oriented. Um, my instructor was a very street savvy guy, mm -hmm. and I didn't know if that was what I really wanted to do. So I searched for uh, another style and found a uh, Japanese instructor named uh, Shihan Kishi. And uh, he had a dojo down uh, in Soho in, um, in Manhattan, and it was very close to where I lived. So I started training there, and that was Kyokushin Karate, which, if you're familiar with that, is a very hard style. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really much more a man's style. Everything yeah. is, uh, yeah, very, very rough. Uh, at the time, uh, we were doing a lot of sparring. Uh, we weren't allowed to wear any kind of protective equipment at all. And I just, uh, I, I got so many injuries. I still yeah. have one that will never leave me. So again, I stayed there for about two or three years. Um, it was pretty exciting. One of the most exciting things that happened was, uh, uh, being introduced to Ma uh, the great Masoyama, which, mm -hmm. uh, whom you probably heard of. I remember uh, he was uh, coming to visit our dojo, and everybody in class was in our gi barefoot, and we had to go down on the street in Manhattan, and we were standing in front of the dojo uh, waiting for him to arrive, and he was bigger than life. And it was very exciting. I still have his book that he autographed. Um, I got a first Q uh, diploma from him. And it was a very exciting time. But again, I felt that after a while, this is not a style for me. It was just too hard. Yeah. So I was in the midst of uh, working on my master's degree in physical education at NYU. And for my master's thesis, I had a research project that compared the incidence and severity of injuries in high school football to martial arts. And I did that by 
uh, going to various dojos, interviewing the instructors and giving out questionnaires to the students. And I had previously uh, met several martial arts instructors, and one of the ones that I had met was uh, Sensei Chakazulu. And so I called him up and asked him if I could come over and interview him, and he said, sure. And when I was there, he said, uh, why don't you bring your gi one day and come and just try a class? And I said, okay. And I was astounded because it was so much fun. And I had not known about fun in martial arts. Everything was very serious in Kyokushin. Mm-hmm. But, but at, uh, at Sensei Zulu's dojo, he had music. Uh, there was a lot of tumbling. Uh, there was floor fighting. Everything was more creative. And I was about to receive my black belt in Kyokushin. I was about a month away from it. And I decided to leave. I said, it's not that important to receive my black belt there. I want to be someplace where I'm happy. Yeah. So um, I started training at uh, Sensei Zulu's dojo. And that was uh, in 1981. And um, so that was, uh, it was a legendary dojo at the time because in New York in uh, 1981, there were very few schools. Okay. Uh, Right, you know, now you go to every block and there's uh, another dojo. But at the time, there were very few and... uh, it was very well known in the in New York City, and that's where I started training. So, how did your relationship with this instructor evolve? <laughs> As I yeah, laugh, because, how yeah. did it evolve? Well, I know exactly how it evolved. Yeah. <laughs> um, about oh six months later or so, uh, one of the students was having a party. And we were all there. And all of a sudden, uh, Sensei Zulu started taking an interest in me. And so uh, it was pretty exciting at the time. I had no idea where I was going to go. We did keep it secretive. The very first time we had a date, Mm -hmm. uh, I actually had to pick him up in front of a a nearby church uh, because it was a clandestine uh, meeting. And uh, fortunately, it worked out, and uh, we've been together ever since. So it's uh, 40-something, 42 years almost that we've been together. Congratulations on that. And, and of course, we got married several years later as well. Mm -hmm. So it's all legal. Yeah. Well, very nice story. What is your current rank then? And yes, so. So my current rank um, in, I think it was 2015, I was awarded uh, ninth Don, which is the, the highest rank in, in our system besides uh, Master Zulu. Uh, at this point, um, I'm sharing that rank with actually uh, three other of my dojo brothers. Um, and... When uh, the time comes, uh, we will probably be sharing the responsibility of uh, of the system. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. 
Wonderful. So along with your martial art training for all these years, um, you mentioned uh, physical education being important and you did earn a master's degree in physical <laughs> education and numerous fitness certifications. Um, so how have these helped you, I guess, in your martial art quest? Okay, uh, it has helped me a lot, actually, because I think so much of martial arts really revolves around uh, having knowledge of anatomy and physiology, uh, having knowledge of correct posture um, as you work your techniques. Posture is really important, balance, um, all of that. So it, it really integrated very well uh, mm -hmm. together. Um, I worked for the YMCA, uh, I was a trainer for them, I taught aerobics and uh, strength training, uh, I've had a yoga practice, uh, as I said, I started my yoga practice about 10 years before I actually uh, started martial arts, and I found the transition to be very easy, even though they seem very uh, opposite there are a lot of similarities. Uh, the breath control, uh, as I see martial arts, it's really like a moving meditation. So mm -hmm. I think everything is, uh, is really connected and uh, both my yoga background and my health and fitness background has really helped me uh, in my martial arts training as well. Yeah, I, I think that those things are so helpful personally. I'm not an instructor in any of those things, but I've taken yoga for many years. Mm -hmm. I enjoy just, you know, cardio work, weights. And, you know, there are some martial artists with the mindset that you should only be doing martial arts. Like that's it. And for me, it was just never that way. I always had to do the cross training because I, I enjoyed it, but I also found that it actually helped me so much. Um, and I think cross-training is really important. Yeah, yeah, I do too. Um, when you were talking about your uh, master's degree and doing a study about football injuries and martial arts injuries, I also find that fascinating because I think that's still a topic that is and should be addressed today. Um, my sons, two of my sons played football in high school, for instance. And um, one of them had martial art training under me and my husband. And I just remember the, how much the martial arts actually helped him probably mm -hmm. resist injury in football practice. Because when they were doing just the beginning exercises, you know, that they do before they go into the game or before they go into practice, some of those exercises were the same that we were doing in martial arts for warm-ups. And, you know, he was able to do them correctly. Whereas, you know, I'd look out the, at the sea of football players and I'd think, gosh, if they were only just holding themselves a little differently, mm -hmm. they might actually, they might actually get an injury from the way they're doing this right now, if they knew how to hold their body better. And so that's, for me, like the martial arts helped the football, but um, I never really had injuries in martial arts, but uh, football injuries are very prevalent, so. Um, Actually, I did find uh, the results of my research were that um, 
Most of the injuries, of course, in martial arts were occurring during uh, sparring. Right. And uh, because you wear now so much equipment, there's a lot more injuries uh, in football than in martial arts. Uh, Mm -hmm. Martial arts was safer uh, practice. Yeah. I feel like people have a misconception that martial arts are very, um, like, dangerous to learn and practice. Um, Sparring, you know, can be. But as you said, nowadays, there's a lot of protection um, and equipment that that people wear. So Um, it's kind of a myth to me that uh, martial arts cause a lot of injuries. Um, But it's an interesting topic. You also um, said that you have been 30 years as a physical education faculty member um, teaching self-defense and karate at the community college. So I just wanted to touch on that. Are you still doing that or that was something that you did in the past? Uh, I was very fortunate. One of my instructors uh, for my master's degree was on the faculty at Adelphi University in Long Island, and he gave me the connection. Uh, they didn't have a self-defense uh, class a course at the time, and uh, I wrote a proposal, and the following year I was hired to, uh, to teach self-defense as a one-credit course in the physical education department. And that was in 1983, and that started me off. Uh, and I uh, taught yoga, uh, I taught self-defense, I taught uh, traditional karate and there for several years, and then also then got a job Uh, as an adjunct teaching at um, the City University of New York, Queensboro Community College. And so for 30 years, um, from 1983 till 2013, uh, I taught uh, as an adjunct at these colleges, and it was absolutely wonderful. I loved working with these young people because I found that I could really influence them in a positive way in so many ways, not only in martial arts, but just in life itself. And I still have uh, connections with quite a few of my students and it's been great just uh, watching them as they get old, older and yeah. get married and have uh, careers and all of that kind of stuff. That's wonderful. Yeah, um, I think it, even today, it's so difficult to get into the colleges to teach martial arts as a credited class or even just as a physical education class. Um, there are so many instructors out there who would love to do that, but it seems like there is a lot of barrier to that. Um, uh, so. Having a master's degree w- was very, very helpful. Yeah. And I think that if you don't have a master's degree, it's almost impossible to mm-hmm. get a, uh, a, a job in a college nowadays as an adjunct. Um, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and I have written down here, too, that you've taught women's self-defense, you know, just for years outside of the college programs. You taught your friends out of your home and you've taught in different venues throughout the years. Um, is there anything you want to touch on about, about that? Uh, what I want to touch on is, um, is how amazing that 
uh, women's self-defense has grown over the years. When I first started teaching, uh, I was just teaching some of my friends uh, some of the basics that I had learned in karate, and that was like 1978. And then I started teaching at the colleges, and uh, I kept trying to do workshops. And at the time, without the internet, uh, it was very difficult uh-huh. uh, trying to get people in. Um, I would offer things and it was like pulling teeth. Uh, a lot of people didn't believe in it um, or there was just a lot of resistance. And uh, over the years, it has gotten so much more popular. Now there's uh, you know, just a vast array of uh, self-defense that's offered all over the place. And I think that's uh, really wonderful. Uh, but at the time, it was pretty difficult. I also, um, there was um, no rape crisis intervention uh, programs at the time. Uh, and in 1985, I believe, 84, uh, Mount Sinai Hospital launched the very first uh, rape, uh, volunteer uh, rape crisis advocate program, uh, which I uh, took and then for several years after that, I was on call overnight. So what would happen is if um, a uh, I don't want to call a victim, I want to call a survivor of mm-hmm. rape came to the emergency room. I would be called and I would have to go to the emergency room and basically um, hold her hand, uh, allow her to. Uh, vent whatever she needed to uh, call. I would call whatever um, family members, uh, support systems. Uh, I would just be there uh, to hold her hand during the examination uh, and um, do whatever I could so she wasn't alone. And that was... um, that. That was, I, I get chills just thinking about some of the experiences that I had there. And now it's much more prevalent, and there are those kinds of programs all over the country. And I think this mm-hmm. is so valuable. Yeah, that really sounds so important. You know, women, women going through this type of situation to have somebody right away. Yep. Another woman uh, that they can at least hold on to a little bit and feel some comfort. Yeah, that is really uh, a beautiful thing that you've done there. You've uh, conducted many seminars. Um, What are your seminars typically about? Do you do self-defense or other martial art topics? Um, I really have two different kinds of seminars. Uh, I have a self-defense seminar and that's pretty much a standard kind of uh, stuff. Uh, Depending on the length, uh, I go through uh, a lot of the basics, uh, which are um, often referred to as the uh, five fingers of self-defense, which Mm -hmm. was developed uh, at the National Women's Martial Arts Federation self-defense program. And basically that's... uh, Number one is uh, think. So things like um, 
what kind of situation are you facing? There's a spectrum of violence. So it could start off with somebody just harassing you or it could start off with somebody jumping you. And so recognizing uh, what kind of danger you might be in, setting boundaries, uh, trying to de-escalate a situation uh, before it happens, trusting your intuition. So we talk about all those kinds of things. Um, then uh, how to use your voice, um, how to uh, demonstrate uh, being forceful, uh, setting your boundaries, uh, using your voice uh, as a as a key, as a yell, how to yell, uh, using body positive body language, what the difference is between uh, being aggressive, passive, or being assertive. Um, then, uh, if necessary. Uh, Basic fighting skills, and I keep it really very basic and simple. Uh, palm heel strikes, uh, elbows, knees, uh, basic releases, that kind of stuff. And then, um, God forbid, uh, anything should happen, what to do after a situation, not to keep it uh, a secret because mm -hmm. so many of us have kept our... Uh, assault secret, but uh, seeking help um, and talking about it and moving forward. So th those are the kind of things that I would teach in uh, my self-defense seminars. Then my martial arts seminars are very different. They are very creative. I've done all kinds of different kinds of seminars. For instance, um, fighting blindfold, um, fighting with just one arm, not being able to use the other one, um, floor fighting. Uh, I have probably, oh, at least maybe two dozen different kinds of martial arts seminars that I've done over the years. Mm -hmm. Working with music, how to use yeah. rhythm. Yeah. yeah, that's a big one of mine. <laughs> That sounds fantastic, that one. Um, but they all sound great. I, I think that you've done such amazing work with uh, your martial arts, with your, your seminars, and all the knowledge that you have to be able to share that. I know that you're uh, you know, a member of a lot of associations, and I don't know if you want to mention a couple of the top associations with which you're affiliated. Well... Uh, there are three women's associations that I've been a member of for many years. Uh, the National Women's Martial Arts Federation that I've been a member of since 1982. Uh, Pacific Association of uh, Women Martial Artists. And uh, the Association of Women Martial Arts Instructors as well. Uh, those are the three main uh, women's organizations that I've been involved with. Uh, I was the uh, chair of the board of the National Women's Martial Arts Federation for a couple of years, and uh, I'm certified by them as a self-defense instructor, and also I um, am a reviewer for other people who are applying to be certified. 
And then the Association of Women Martial Arts Instructors, that's uh, only been around uh, since 1998. And I say only because the other one's been around since the 70s. But yeah. I was um, the Association of Women Martial Arts Instructors uh, from 19, no, 20, rather, uh, 2008 till 2014, I was their executive director. And uh, one of the most fabulous things that I think I've done, uh, along with uh, one of my other uh, colleagues, uh, Janice Okamoto Hanchi, or Professor, I think is her title, actually, we were on the board together. And in 2012, we decided that we need to do something to recognize some of the fabulous women instructors in martial arts. And we realized that the men are always giving accolades and trophies to each other just for being alive, not for doing anything <laughs> in particular. <laughs> I don't want to put them down. Yeah. But it yeah. was like they're always giving each other, you know, oh, you're fabulous. Here, take this trophy, take yeah. this award. And uh, we decided some of the women uh, need recognition. So we founded the Ame Hall of Fame. And the Hall of Fame basically recognizes any woman in the martial arts who's devoted 30 plus years towards her art and teaching. Um, that was the only criteria. She didn't have to do anything else. And yeah. the very first uh, time we did this in 2012, uh, I had a list of over 100 women that I actually invited. And over 30 of them showed up, and it was the most exciting time. And uh, since then, 75 women, over 75 women, have been inducted into the Ame Hall of Fame. And these are women, uh, some of them who I'm sure are well-known, Arlene Lemus, Kathy Long, Graciela Casillas, Cookie Melendez, Restita de Jesus, but also many, many women who have just been in their own dojos and who are not well-known, who haven't gotten any publicity. And we are just so happy that we've been able to recognize them, as well as a few of my dear uh, colleagues, such as Barbara Feldman uh, and Pip Strain, who passed away already. And mm -hmm. um, I'm just so happy that we were able to recognize them before then. Yeah, that's awesome. And, you know, Restita De Jesus, she and I actually do a podcast together. Um, uh -huh. so, um, I've known her for a few years and uh, I wrote a book called The Martial Arts Woman. She's in that book as well. Um, I know Kathy, I have it. Okay. Yeah. And Kathy Long, um, you know, she does some of the podcasts with us too. And then we have another friend, Jane Larkin Miser. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's really nice to be able to connect with the other women and what you did with honoring these women is, is a lot like what I'm trying to do with this podcast and the books that I write or to get the stories out there and to celebrate women who are martial artists. Because like you said, um, men have a lot of platforms and they also have huge groups and communities where they support each other. And it's hard sometimes to get in 
as a woman, you know, to infiltrate into any of those or to be seen as somebody who's competent or serious. And so it's, it's nice to at least know that we have each other um, and to continue to build communities for women martial artists as well. Not to say there's anything wrong with the men, because I, I worked out with both and I enjoy practicing martial arts with men and women. We're all students of martial arts together. Um, so I but, actually have trained uh, primarily with men. Mm -hmm. uh, my dojo had very few women, uh, yeah. even though we all, you know, tried to encourage women to come in. Uh, it just didn't happen. And uh, so uh, the few women that uh, were in my dojo were always working out with men because we always yeah. figured, you know, that's what we really need to work with um, to defend ourselves, to yeah. improve. Yeah. So being a member of these women's organizations and going to their yearly camps and conventions really gave me an opportunity to... Uh, bond with the women a little bit more and right kind of a, a relief from all the testosterone that I was yeah. always surrounded <laughs> yeah exactly I mean I think we need both men and women we need to work out with both and um primarily through my training years it was mostly men as well I started in 1989 uh -huh. and there were you know just a handful you know a couple of women it was really it was a community center so there were a lot of people training Mm -hmm. But again, primarily men. Um, I had my husband with me and we trained together. So that was kind of nice. But um, yeah, it was a different, a different time, even back in 1989 of, oh, of yeah. training, um, which has, has slowly changed over time. Yeah. Let's move on to a few of the personal notes about you, your, your hobbies your dogs and, and your <laughs> training, your current training regimen. So what are your, what are some of your hobbies, Zosha? So uh, one of my best, most favorite hobbies is gardening. Um, I think it was 1978 uh, that I was turned on to gardening by a friend of mine. And we had just a little garden uh, in New York because there's not any big gardening opportunities in New York. But I just found so much joy. Uh, and so every, every place that I have lived since then, I've always found a space to garden and grow something or other. And now uh, my husband and I moved to uh, California in 2017. We live in a senior community called Laguna Woods. And they have two large garden centers with um, various uh, like 200 square foot plots that um, for $57 a year you can rent and uh they provide you all the mulch you want, and you can grow your own vegetables. Nice. Uh, and <laughs> so I know it's like a, a wonderland uh, here. Yeah. And uh, so I have a plot, and I grow all kinds of stuff. Um, every year I try to grow something new. This year I tried to grow okra, and my okra is like almost as tall as me. I cannot believe. Wow. It's just very exciting, but I grow uh, tomatoes of course and uh, zucchini and arugula and swiss chard and just a whole 
different host of um, vegetables and herbs. And that sounds so that's, delicious, um, by the way. Sounds it delicious. It is delicious. <laughs> <laughs> so that's uh, uh, one of my main things that I do. And when I go into the garden, uh, it's kind of like martial arts. When you're doing it, you can't think of anything else. So it's, yeah. uh, it's a form of meditation. And then uh, we have, um, there's a Saddleback Community College here has uh, an emeritus program uh, which now, of course, is uh, online on Zoom. But it, uh, when I started, it was in person, and they offered uh, Chinese uh, brush painting. And so I started doing that, and uh, I got pretty involved with uh, this Chinese brush painting. And um, so that's another hobby of mine. So those are my uh, two main hobbies. And then uh, last year, exactly... Uh, a year ago, we got a little dog. He's um, a mini schnauzer. We got him when he was eight weeks old, uh, and we named him Sifu Silverfoot. <laughs> <laughs> and we just call him a Sifu, which is pretty funny. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's cute. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and funny. he is um, he's an absolute joy. He's brought a lot of joy into our home. Uh, my husband is a former U.S. Marine. Uh, he served from 1956 to 1962. And um, he is, uh, he grew up in Harlem. He's um, African-American and actually Afro-Caribbean. And uh, so he's gone through uh, a lot of trials and tribulations in his life and has experienced uh, some PTSD and Having this little dog in the house has brought us both so much joy and comfort. And so um, Sifu Silverfoot is now our little companion. And our latest thing that we're doing with him, because he's finally a little older and calms down a little bit more. He's 13 months old. We uh, In California, it's very dog friendly. And they have a lot of outdoor restaurants that allow dogs to come yeah. uh, with you. So we've been doing that. And that's been a lot of fun. That's great. I have so many friends. I don't have any pets right now. But, you know, dog lovers are, are abundant. And they all have wonderful stories to share about their their beloved dogs. And I enjoyed yours as well. And finally, I guess, where do you train these days? What do you do for your martial art training? Well, as Jackie Chan has said, um, everything is Kung Fu. So yeah. uh, as, as a side note, in New York City, it was uh, really difficult to find a space for any length of time. Uh, we would, I actually counted. So since I started training with uh, my husband, we have had 14 different dojo spaces, okay. 14. <laughs> and the reason is because we were always renting a place and something would happen. It would close down. The rent would be increased. So, um, it's been very interesting because every space that we went to, our training had to change a little bit because of the environment. And I think that's a really a great thing because 
too many people train in these large dojos where they think it's going to be the same space all the time with comfortable floors and just a lot of space to move. But training in different spaces, I think, is really important and really provides a much more well-rounded experience. So right now, our dojo is under the sky. Uh, fortunately, we live in, uh, in a place where we can just walk outside and train. So every morning, like clockwork, because my husband is still uh, a, a U.S. Marine, once a Marine, uh -huh. always Marine, at 8 o'clock uh, every day, except Sundays, we go right outside and we train. Uh, we put on our earphones because we like to train with music. And most of our training is with our favorite weapons. And I have three. Okay. Um, I have a, uh, a short staff or a Joe, but not one of those flimsy ones that people are spinning around and yelling in the tournaments mm -hmm. to me that kind of acrobatics uh, right. my, mine is a uh, solid wood uh, pretty heavy uh, uh, short staff so that's my favorite weapon my second favorite weapon is a walking cane um, and my third favorite weapon is actually a weapon that I made myself. It's made out of, it's a necklace made out of uh, stone beads. And it, um, it, I guess it's more of a, uh, a whipping type of weapon. Yeah. Uh, um, and uh, that's pretty much what I train with every day. And then I do... Uh, my basic stretching, breathing exercises, and empty hand work as well. But uh, it's out there under the sun or under the stars, depending on what time uh, yeah. of the year it is. <laughs> well, nature is the perfect place for martial arts. I always uh, believe that. And what you said about space is true. It, you can practice martial arts in any space. So you know, whether you take bigger or smaller steps or whatever, but you can train anywhere. And it's important for people to remember, you don't need a dojo. Uh, you can train wherever you'd like. How long, how long each day do you, do you do your training? You said you start at eight. Uh, you know, it depends. Um, usually, oh, could be as short as uh, 30 minutes of continuous uh -huh. mo movement. Uh, could be 45 or an hour. It could okay. be longer. It depends. Uh, we also have a mukjang, you know, um, a. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we can train on that as, as well. So it depends. Uh, I don't really look at the clock, I, mm -hmm. I work out um, how I feel. Um, but it's usually a minimum of, uh, of 30 minutes because I like to get, uh, you know, some of my movement, get sweaty and do a little cardio. Yeah, that sounds great. Well, I don't have any more questions today. Um, I think we covered a lot of information and it was, again, so interesting um, because you've had so many different experiences. I really appreciate your time, Zosha. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on today? Um, 
Well, I was born in 1949, so I am 73 years old, and I just want to say that uh, I think martial arts, you can do it uh, forever. You just need to learn how to modify your training and accept that your body is going to change as you age, Uh, but you can still remain fit and... uh, you can still explore all different uh, kinds of martial arts and all different kinds of techniques, and it's a lifelong uh, pursuit. So there's no, oh, I'm too old. I don't believe in that at all. Yeah, that's great advice. <laughs> I think sometimes we, we forget that or we get discouraged, and there, there's really no need to get discouraged as you um, go through Um Perfection is not required, is what I always say. Um, it's it's about your personal training and how it affects you in your life. I think one one uh, other thing I, I'd like to say is that uh, I think too many schools try to create clones, and if you're in a particular style, you have to be exactly in into that style, and they don't encourage creativity. I think creativity is really important, and the more creative you can be, the more you can fit whatever style, whatever martial art, to your body, to your way of thinking. And if you really want to stay in martial arts forever, it's important to do that. Um, you, You need to develop a style that best suits your body and your mind. I I agree with that. I'm glad you brought that up. That's something I encounter frequently because part of what I really enjoy about martial arts are doing kicks. I still have a lot of flexibility. Mm -hmm. And so I'll post photos of me doing kicks to inspire other people. Hey, I'm 59. If I can do this, you can do it or you can try something or you can learn it your own way. Uh, I do get backlash sometimes from people about the fact that I'm not doing a perfect kick and to me they're you know I've trained in tai chi kickboxing tang sudo taekwondo um and they all kick differently so there is no there is no perfect kick and I always say too that I'm not kicking to give a tutorial I'm not I'm not showing this kick as a way of teaching people I'm showing this kick as a way to show what I'm doing um so yeah I think there are a lot of people very very centered on you know, a a style and it has to be this way where in reality, you know, the more creative you are in your own practice, the better off you are because you know your limits and you know where you want to improve and start yourself. It's important to learn traditional arts. I definitely learned a lot from it, but I think being creative also in your practice is really important. So I appreciate you bringing that up. Yeah, foundation is important, but after that, you know, then what? Are you going to do the exact same thing forever? No, yeah. too boring. Too boring. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to hear you say that. I agree 100%. Excellent. Okay, well, thank you so much again for being on the show. Um, I had a wonderful time, and I hope you did too. I did. Thank you so much. It's really been a great experience. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Andrea. 